Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our May 2016 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. In this article, researchers report on a six-month study that adds to the substantial data supporting the value of clozapine for schizophrenia patients who do not do well with other antipsychotics. In this study, risperidone and clozapine were compared in a six-month trial carried out at three outpatient clinics in the United States. The study was funded by grants from the National Institute of Mental Health. Active drug and placebo were provided by Novartis and Janssen. The trial was long enough to show symptom changes that would not be observed in a six-week trial. The common adverse effects of tachycardia, sweating, and salvation seen with clozapine are already well known. Despite these, patients who received clozapine were less likely to discontinue treatment due to lack of efficacy. Researchers found increasing benefit from clozapine over time for those with persisting symptoms who were living in the community. Slow cross-titration and a relatively high final dose of about 500 milligrams of clozapine were associated with better response. Risperidone was also administered at a moderately high dose of just over 6 milligrams. Based on their findings, the researchers assert that clozapine should not be reserved for those with severe treatment refractory schizophrenia, but should be made available to a broader range of patients who experience persisting symptoms with other antipsychotics. Major depressive episodes, both unipolar and bipolar, are highly prevalent and associated with significant disability, morbidity, and mortality. Practitioners generally hold to the clinical impression that acutely depressed bipolar patients are more difficult to treat compared to patients with unipolar major depression. However, studies comparing the efficacy of pharmacologic treatment for these two groups of patients are lacking. In the present study, therefore, the authors set out to compare the efficacy of pharmacologic agents for bipolar depression with major depressive disorder, or MDD. Medline and PubMed databases were searched for randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials of antidepressants used as monotherapy for the treatment of MDD. The authors also sought trials of oral drugs used as monotherapy for the treatment of bipolar depression, including mood stabilizers, atypical antipsychotics, and antidepressants. 190 articles of nearly 200 trials focusing on antidepressant monotherapy and MDD were selected. 13 articles and one poster, including 19 trials focusing on drug monotherapy and bipolar depression, were also selected. Study results showed that response rates in MDD were 52% for drug therapy versus 37% for placebo. In bipolar depression, the response rates were 54% for drug therapy versus 40% for placebo. Drug therapy was also more effective than placebo in both MDD and bipolar depression trials. 
the meta-regression analysis suggested a statistically significantly greater treatment effect size in MDD than in bipolar depression studies. However, the absolute magnitude of the difference was numerically small. This finding is of great importance for clinical practice, since it suggests that, at least with respect to short-term treatment efficacy, Patients who present with either bipolar depression or MDD have equal chances of experiencing significant improvement during the course of treatment. Although benzodiazepines are widely prescribed for patients with schizophrenia, there is evidence that benzodiazepine use is related to increased mortality among these individuals. In this month's CME offering, researchers examined the association between benzodiazepine use and mortality in patients with schizophrenia. This study received funding support from the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. The authors performed a retrospective longitudinal analysis using Medicaid claims data merged with death certificate data for nearly 19,000 adult patients with ICD-9-diagnosed schizophrenia from mid-2006 through 2013. Of the patients diagnosed with schizophrenia, 72% were not prescribed a benzodiazepine. 18% were prescribed benzodiazepines but not an antipsychotic, and 9% were prescribed benzodiazepines in combination with antipsychotics. Controlling for a wide array of demographic and clinical variables, the risk of mortality was 208% higher for patients prescribed benzodiazepines without an antipsychotic and 48% higher for patients prescribed benzodiazepines in combination with antipsychotics. Patients prescribed benzodiazepines had greater risk of death by suicide and accidental poisoning, as well as death from natural causes. This study, along with previous work, suggests that the routine ongoing prescription of benzodiazepines for schizophrenia patients should be discouraged in the absence of additional prospective study or, at the very least, approached with caution. For patients with schizophrenia, these findings suggest that prescription of benzodiazepines should be undertaken only after serious reflection on the balance between potential risks and benefits and with appropriate informed consent. Patients, family members, and caregivers should be educated with regard to potential mortality risks associated with benzodiazepine use in these patients. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the May Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. The ultimate long-term goal of treating major depressive disorder is to achieve sustained remission in recovery and to prevent recurrence. The recent acceptance of using adjunctive treatment following inadequate response to monotherapy has mainly focused on the acute treatment phase. There is a paucity of long-term data on adjunctive therapy, despite the overwhelming high rates of relapse and recurrence to monotherapy reported in the literature. L-methylfolate is among the few treatments indicated as an adjunctive treatment for inadequate responders to antidepressant monotherapy. 
the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of 15 mg L-methylfolate were established in two placebo-controlled trials when it was used as an adjunct following an inadequate response to SSRI monotherapy. The objective of the present study, funded by the Nestle Health Science PAM Lab, was to evaluate the long-term efficacy, including recovery and recurrence, in a 12-month acute controlled study of 70 patients taking open-label adjunctive L-methylfolate with an SSRI. The study also reported safety and tolerability of all patients who received adjunct L-methylfolate, 7.5 or 15 milligram doses during the 12-month open-label phase. Among patients who entered the open-label phase in remission, 90% achieved full recovery, and none of the patients experienced a relapse or recurrence during the 12-month phase. Among the patients who failed to show a response or remission at the end of the acute study, 60% converted to a remission. 40% achieved full recovery, and no patients reported recurrence. Among 70 patients who received adjunct 15 mg L-methylfolate, the majority completed the 12-month open-label phase, had no serious adverse events, and did not stop the study due to side effects. Despite the open-label design, the notable findings in this study were the high rates of sustained remission and no reported recurrence in those patients who recovered. The high retention rates also underscore the tolerability of this adjunctive treatment. Further controlled studies are warranted to clarify the long-term benefits of adjunctive L-methylfolate in depressed patients showing an inadequate response to monotherapy. This article is freely available online. Please visit the May Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In a recent study from Switzerland supported by the Swiss National Science Foundation, researchers examined the impact of childhood trauma in a large sample of 196 young patients treated in a specialized program for early intervention in psychosis. The authors found that depending on their age, at the time of exposure to traumatic experiences, patients had a different symptomatic profile. Patients exposed to trauma up to age 12 showed more severe positive, negative, manic, and depressive symptoms during the first three years of treatment. Patients who were exposed from 12 through 16 years showed only more negative symptoms than patients who were not exposed to trauma. This different symptom profile may be explained by the neural circuits and brain regions that underlie these symptoms. Early in life, when much brain development is taking place, the exposure to a severe stressor might affect many different circuits and brain regions, leading to global and long-lasting impairments in different domains of psychopathology. This is true to a lesser degree when trauma occurs at a slightly later stage, during a time when some regions and circuits are further developed. The results also suggest that patients exposed to trauma during adolescence may have difficulty with social interaction, which could explain the greater severity of negative symptoms. Early interventions for post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, effectively reduce its symptoms, but their long-term effect is poorly documented. 
Moreover, many symptomatic trauma survivors do not use treatment facilities, even when they are available. The goal of the present study was to evaluate the long-term effect of early interventions to prevent PTSD. Researchers assessed early cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, and compared it to treatment with the antidepressant escitalopram and to the avoidance of treatment. All therapies started within a month of the traumatic events. Funding support for the study was received from Lundbeck Pharmaceuticals and a U.S. Public Health Service grant. Study results show that CBT quickly reduces early symptoms and its effect remains stable for three years. Surprisingly, three years after trauma exposure, all other groups, including those who declined treatment, matched the level of PTSD symptoms that CBT had reached at five months. The authors determined that early CBT significantly shortens the duration of PTSD, but ultimately does not reduce its long-term prevalence. The results also show that about a third of trauma survivors with acute PTSD develop a non-remitting treatment-refractory symptom trajectory. This non-remitting group may explain why the prevalence of PTSD persists despite progress in treatment. The authors conclude that CBT should be provided to trauma survivors who develop acute PTSD one month after trauma exposure. Such treatment can shorten the illness and prevent its ripple effects, such as unemployment, substance abuse, or depression. Cognitive impairment is a frequent outcome of stroke and transient ischemic attack, or TIA, but the relationship between them remains relatively unexplained. There are very few accepted indicators to help identify patients who are at risk. Researchers from Israel, supported by grants from the Israeli government and from Israeli and American foundations, sought to examine whether depressive symptoms after a stroke or TIA increase the risk of cognitive impairment at two-year follow-up. The 306 participants were survivors of a first-ever mild-to-moderate stroke, or TIA, who underwent 3T magnetic resonance imaging. They were examined 6, 12, and 24 months after the event using interviews, depression scales, and neurological, psychological, and functional evaluations. The authors found the main outcome to be the development of cognitive impairment. Nearly 17% of the patients showed cognitive impairment at two-year follow-up. A geriatric depression score higher than six, either at admission or six months after the stroke or TIA, was a marker of future cognitive impairment and a worse functional outcome. The authors recommend depression screening among stroke and TIA survivors in order to identify those who are more likely to have a worse cognitive and functional outcome. The authors of this article focus on etavoxetine, a highly selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. The investigators report the efficacy outcomes from three independent Phase three clinical trials sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company. In each trial, the study population included patients with major depressive disorder who had experienced a partial response to SSRI therapy but still needed additional treatment. Each trial compared adjunctive etavoxetine treatment at different doses with adjunctive placebo treatment. 
Each study failed to separate between treatment groups on the primary outcome of mean change from baseline in Montgomery-Asberg Depression Rating Scale total score. Additionally, each study failed to meet most secondary efficacy outcomes. The investigators discuss insights into current challenges in the study of adjunctive treatment for major depressive disorder, as well as the outcomes associated with adjunctive norepinephrine treatment within this patient population. The authors conclude that the lack of demonstrated efficacy in these three studies precludes the further development of etavoxetine as an adjunctive treatment for patients with major depressive disorder who are partial responders to SSRI therapy. Clozapine is indicated for use in treatment refractory schizophrenia, and therapeutic drug monitoring has been recommended to guide its appropriate use in clinical practice. Over the years, various factors such as smoking, concomitant medications, and caffeine intake have been found to influence plasma clozapine levels. However, intra-individual variation in plasma clozapine levels remains poorly studied. In this government-sponsored study, the authors employed a population pharmacokinetic approach to assess intra-individual variations in plasma levels of both clozapine and N-desmethylclozapine, or NDMC, as well as the impact of smoking on this variability. The observed clozapine and NDMC concentrations were applied in a Bayesian pharmacokinetic modeling approach to compute a predicted concentration. The predicted concentrations of clozapine and NDMC were then compared with the observed concentrations in the form of a predicted-to-observed concentration ratio. The coefficient of variation of the predicted-to-observed concentration ratios was taken as a measure of intra-individual variation. Over 700 plasma levels from 61 patients were included in this analysis. The coefficient of variation ratios for clozapine and NDMC were 30% and 27%, respectively. The group who smoked had higher coefficients of variations for clozapine and NDMC, but this difference was not statistically significant. Plasma clozapine levels cannot be assumed to be static, and a significant degree of variation occurs within an individual. If plasma levels are used to guide dosing of clozapine, serial measurements rather than a single level might be necessary to make an informed clinical decision. The authors conclude that the clinical implications of variability within an individual in plasma clozapine levels need further study. It is well established that patients with MTHFR polymorphisms are prone to depression and numerous other psychiatric and neurodegenerative conditions. MTHFR facilitates the last enzymatic step needed for the conversion of folate into the active levomethylfolate coenzyme form, which is needed for various steps in monoamine synthesis and methylation. Impaired B vitamin metabolism results in a deficiency of coenzymes, a subsequent rise of homocysteine, and less than optimal monoamine production. In this double-blind, placebo-controlled study, researchers administered fully metabolized B vitamins to a population of patients who were both 
positive for MTHFR and who had major depression for eight weeks. They then compared their response to a placebo group. Rating scale scores reflected on average a 12-point drop in depression scores in the active treatment group and a homocysteine reduction that correlated with response. The placebo patients had no meaningful drop in depression scores and a slight elevation in homocysteine levels at week 8. Further, 42% of the active treatment group achieved full remission by week 8. No patients experienced mania or hypomania, and all side effects were observed to be at or lower than placebo rates. These findings support the homocysteine hypothesis of depression and further demonstrate the safety and efficacy of using metabolized B vitamins as antidepressant therapy. Fully metabolized vitamins are designed to provide all coenzymes necessary for monamine production. Now that they are available commercially, these findings may represent a paradigm shift in the treatment of depression and other illnesses associated with hyperhomocysteinemia. The authors conclude that by addressing the homocysteine basis of depression, clinicians are potentially attending to its genetic cause and further allowing for symptomatic relief through optimal synthesis of monoamines. Funding support for this study was provided by JMAC Pharmaceuticals, who provided the active and placebo capsules. This article is freely available online. Please visit our May table of contents at psychiatrist.com. In a cross-sectional study sponsored in part by the U.S. National Institutes of Health, researchers assessed clinical outcomes associated with the presence of a lifetime history of comorbid post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, in almost 300 patients with bipolar disorder. The prevalence of lifetime comorbid PTSD was almost 20%. Patients with both bipolar disorder and PTSD had a lower age at onset of manic and hypomanic episodes and earlier initiation of illicit drug use. In addition, these patients were more likely to be younger when they first received the diagnosis of bipolar disorder and had a higher number of manic and hypomanic episodes. Quality of life was worse in all domains among patients with comorbidity disorders, and rates of functional impairment were higher. Future longitudinal studies, including prospective follow-up, are needed to confirm the present findings and provide further information regarding the phenomenological changes in the course of bipolar disorder with comorbid PTSD. Antipsychotic drugs are associated with an increased risk of seizure. A recent large-scale epidemiologic study in Taiwan supported in part by the Ministry of Science and Technology, used data from a national insurance database to explore risk of seizure with specific antipsychotics. The authors found that first-generation agents carry a higher risk than second-generation antipsychotics. For most of the agents studied, the risk of antipsychotic-related seizure was comparable to that seen with risperidone, clozapine, 
Haloperidol and thiorizidine had higher seizure risks, but aripiprazole may be associated with a lower risk. The authors also found that factors associated with an increased seizure risk included younger age, male gender, a diagnosis of schizophrenia, and renal insufficiency. Cannabis is popularly believed to be a relatively benign substance, and it is also considered to have potential medical benefits. However, a recent meta-analysis found that cannabis was associated with only modest benefit for a number of physical and mental conditions. In the latest installment of his clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at the existing data on efficacy as well as the data on adverse events associated with cannabis use. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the May Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight two educational activities. In our first activity, supported by an educational grant from Otsuka, you will meet Maria, a busy teacher, wife, and mother who reports deflated mood, fatigue, loss of enjoyment, and increased appetite, as well as other symptoms that lead you to diagnose her with major depressive disorder. What do you do next? Compare Maria's response to different antidepressant medications and then learn more about how to effectively choose a therapeutic strategy for your patients. Depression and anxiety often occur together and they can keep your patients from achieving their full potential at work and hinder their social activities. Explore our second CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Forest Laboratories, to learn about the relationship between and impact of depression and anxiety and get an overview of strategies to assess and treat both depressive and anxious symptoms in your patients. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the May issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Sheldon signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.